Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. Man, am I glad to be back. I'm so excited because there have been so many changes. And if you follow my TikTok, I've kind of tried to keep y'all updated. I've tried to keep y'all updated on the Instagram, too, through my stories. So um, generally, that's how I'll kind of keep you guys updated um, in the future. But for right now, everything looks to be on track. So now we are the Historical Paranormal, proudly hosted out of Houston, Texas. And oh my God, this city is huge. Like, it's so big. (laughs) And, you know, I don't, I knew that, right? Like, we all grow up in Texas knowing Houston's the big city. And I guess I just didn't realize it, like, I don't know, in reality, because you think about it, but then you're actually having to drive it all the time. And then it's like, oh my God, like, um, no, I do not want to drive to all these different areas. I don't want to drive to Sugarland. I don't want to drive to Pearland. Um, I want to just live my life and not do any of that now and stay on my little side of town. So yeah, it's just mind blowing how big the city is, but I love it. And there's so much to explore. So we're going to have a good time with that. And I'm going to try to find some local flavors, some stories here. And um, I have a, a pretty good idea of, of the next thing. Well, actually, I already know the next one because the next episode is going to be the second part of this one. I'm sorry, guys. This one's already, as you're going to find out, um, really long. So uh, I had to stop somewhere and we are going to have a two-parter. So sorry for those of you who hate it. Um, And the two-parter will be, the second part anyway, will be a side note. So it's not going to be as long as this one. I wanted to give y'all as much information in this first part as I possibly could. Um, And there's, there's a lot. And, you know, I probably should have known that because we're looking at France during the Hundred Years' War, which has a lot of information to begin with. I mean, even the third part of the Hundred Years' War, the Lancastrian period, which we'll be in today, a small part of the Lancastrian period. So basically, like, a small part of a small part of the Hundred Years' War took so long to research. Oh, my goodness. Um, So... Without any more ado, oh, one thing, one more ado, uh, I do want to say thank you to Annalise Ruxell, who really helped me with a lot of the pronunciations. So thank you, Annalise. I appreciate you because, you know, French is hard. I've said that before in a couple of my other episodes, Um, but this is probably the one where it's the hardest. So let's get into it. Today we are discussing possibly the first acknowledged serial killer because I just refuse to believe that he's the first one. I don't believe that that's the case at all because humans are humans, right? Today's subject is Gilles Duray. And trigger warning of all trigger warnings. This contains graphic depictions of child abuse and murder. All right, let's go back to the early 1400s. In France, war is raging after 75 years of conflict with England, most of which has taken place in France. The Hundred Years' War, while actually having gone on for 116 years, was responsible for a lot of innovation, mostly in weapons and battlefield tactics. One such tactic was wrecking havoc not only for the military, but for the people of France. 
The English were using the scorched earth policy during their battles in France, destroying everything in sight that could possibly be used by the enemy. In the process, they caused huge economic problems for France, which to the English was probably a happy coincidence, if I'm honest. In a small village in France, a 13-year-old girl had a vision that St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret appeared to her in her father's garden, telling her to drive the English out of France and take the Dauphine to Rheims for consecration. Now, she didn't take this vision immediately to the leaders in her community, or even to her family at first, because who would believe her? She was young. It was one vision. But after they kept coming, after many visions with the same command came, at age 16, Jeanne d'Arc asked for her relative, Durand Lassois, to take her to a larger village nearby so she could get an armed escort to speak directly with the Dauphin of France. When she was taken to the garrison commander, he basically said, (laughs) okay, sure, Jan, and dismissed her. But she didn't give up. It was only after she correctly predicted the outcome of a battle that was taking place in Rufai that he believed her and took her to see Charles VII. This origin story for Joan of Arc is the perfect testimony to her persistence, confidence, and convictions in France's divine victory in the Hundred Years' War. She was a cult of personality, and when she spoke, it gave weary soldiers hope and vigor, something their commanders and even their king couldn't restore for them at this time. Keep in mind that this war had been going on for 75 years at this point. There were whole generations that had known nothing but war. She begged the Dauphin Charles to allow her to ride with his soldiers on the front lines, leading them into battle. After several increasingly violent losses to the British forces, Charles finally allowed this. The year following saw the tide change in the war against England. The French began winning almost immediately after Joan joined their campaigns. While she maintained that she never killed anyone on the battlefield, others swore that she did, and she may have used the pole of the banner she carried into battle to do it. Either way, whatever she did or inspired others to do, it worked. Joan never actually led battles. During the battles, there were always noblemen in charge of leading the troops. The Duke of Alençon was one, as was her particular friend, Gilles de Rye. He was personally chosen to guard Joan after a series of battlefield successes had distinguished him among his peers. He was with Joan as the siege of Orléans was lifted and celebrated with her. His prowess on the battlefield had not gone unnoticed by the Dauphin either, who made him a marshal of France. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Let's start from the beginning. Gilles de Montmorency Laval was born on September 4th, 1404, in Champtocé-sur-Loire to Guy II de Montmorency Laval and Marie de Crayon. He was known even at a young age for his bright mind, his ability to illuminate manuscripts, and fluently speak Latin. But at just 10 years old, Gilles' father died tragically in a hunting incident. 
Hunting accidents usually weren't quick deaths and were often incredibly violent. It's said that Gilles witnessed this accident and understandably was very affected by it. But tragedy would strike his family again in only nine months. His mother, Marie de Crayon, died of unknown causes, leaving Gilles and his brother orphaned. He and his younger brother, René de la Suze, were placed under the care of his maternal grandfather, Jean de Crayon. Jean was a social climber, and he viewed Gilles as a bargaining chip into a new and even more affluent family. Gilles was very much aware of his value to his grandfather, and his behavior was said to turn moody and combative. And at 10 or 11 years old, having just lost his parents and then been thrust into a life where he received no love or consolation for this, must have had a tremendous effect on his life thereafter. Not only that, to know that your only value to your family is now who you can marry, well, it kind of sounds actually like the choice that most women had at that point, just just saying. <laughs> All right, so his grandfather tried to marry Gilles off to many rich and influential, influential girls, and after those, many of those attempts failed, he finally succeeded with Catherine de Troyes, heiress of La Vendée and Poitou. His new life started off well enough, but soon the war touched Brittany, and Gilles was forced to throw his hat in. The Duchy of Brittany was a highly contested territory, having already seen a war with the Breton War of Succession between the Counts of Blois and the House of Montfort. The House of Montfort had won the war, but the Counts of Blois, specifically Olivier de Blois, Count of Penthievre, were still not over it. And this type of backtracking between wars was probably why the Hundred Years' War went on for so long. But anyway, Olivier was still in his feelings about his family's loss because he felt that the men of the family never would have agreed to the treaty that ended the Breton War. His grandfather, Charles of Blois, had died during the war, and his widow Joanna, Countess of Penthievre, was basically forced by the Montfort family to sign what became known as the Treaty of Garand. Charles's grandson, enter Olivier, decided to avenge this. He invited Duke John V to a festival in Chatonceau and then had him arrested on the spot. To avoid John being recaptured by his family, he moved him to a different castle in the Pentievre family each day. This is where Gilles comes in, though not by choice. His grandfather, Jean, the social climber, ends up siding with the House of Montfort and drags Gilles into the decision and the war. Duke John's wife, Joan of France, who was thoroughly over it, had Gilles, his grandfather, and the other nobles of Brittany lay siege to each of the Pentievre castles one by one until the duke was found. But it wasn't until she commanded that they capture the Dowager Countess of the Pentievre family that they finally released John back to his family. Olivier was forced to relinquish his county and leave in exile after this. To add insult to injury and prevent more wars in the same vein from continuing, the Montfort family declared the Treaty of Garand broken. 
They also ensured that the Pentievre family could never claim rights to the Duchy of Brittany again. Jean and Gilles were instrumental in all of this, and for their efforts, the Dauphin rewarded them with land grants that the family chose to convert to money instead. Gilles was on the way to national recognition, and to seal that, he even made friends with the Dauphin Charles VII. He was seen in his entourage at Saumur in 1425, though it's possible that he had become a trusted friend before this. He continued in his military career, earning credit for killing, or capturing, it's not well known, English Captain Blackburn. After a few more successes, the Dauphin ordered him to be the personal bodyguard and protector of Joan d'Arc. And here are two stories intertwine. Joan was finally on the road to her vision of escorting the Dauphin to Reims. Joan became very close friends with Gilles, and through the next five years, they were nearly always together. He believed wholeheartedly in her cause and fought fearlessly to protect her politically and in battle. During the Siege of Orléans, a battle that had been going on for five months at the time of Joan's arrival, she showed her presence was not only an inspiration to the soldiers, but a key factor in their success. What's more, her advice on military tactics was taken by the generals in charge. This led to what would turn out to be a watershed victory in the Hundred Years' War. It was a decided victory for France, and it cemented Joan's reputation as a spiritual guide, or even a representative of God here on Earth. Well, that was the French soldier's take on it. England could not imagine a world where God chose France to keep its crown and win a war against them, so they started telling everyone who would listen that she was possessed by the devil. And by the way, that might be the most English thing I've ever seen in this, the research for this podcast. After this battle, Gilles was further awarded by the Dauphin and chosen as one of four lords to bring the Holy Ampoula from the Abbey of Saint-Rémy to Notre-Dame de Rheims for the consecration of Charles VII as king. This held the chrism or oil used for anointing kings since 1311 and was going to be used in the consecration at Rheims. On the same day, he was chosen to escort the Holy Ampula. He was made a marshal of France. He was even granted the usage of a border of the royal arms to use in his family coat of arms, which is why you'll see the royal fleur-de-lis on a blue background in Gilles' family's coat of arms. Joan and her family were also distinguished with gifts after this battle. As you would imagine, being God's chosen representative of France, right? However, in the spring of 1430, the now king, Charles VII, ordered Joan to confront the English at Compiègne. It was at this battle that Joan was thrown from her horse, and in the ensuing confusion, she was left alone outside the town's gates. The English captured her and held her basically for ransom until finally exchanging her for around 10,000 francs. King Charles, while totally fine with using her as an inspirational prop against the English, wasn't totally convinced that she was God's emissary here on earth. He questioned her divinity and saw her as an oddity that he had begrudgingly been giving military attire to. 
To King Charles VII, she wasn't the savior and the maiden of France the way she was seen by the people. She was a pain in the ass who was making France's progress in the war completely her doing instead of his, effectively taking his spotlight away. So when he got her back from the Burgundians, or the English, he was unsure about what to do with her. Should he have her imprisoned himself, he faced backlash right at the beginning of his reign. And should he let her continue, he would have to endure the people, thinking the hero of the wars was a 17-year-old girl from Domremy and not their king. Instead, he chose to hand her over to the church officials, who had also grown tired of her. Joan was immediately placed in jail after being charged with 70 counts of heresy and witchcraft. Her trial began on February 21st, 1431. She was questioned over and over again about her visions, with the questioners trying their best to challenge her on religious knowledge or divinity in general. After the first 12 questions, Joan made these studied men of the cloth look like fools who were questioning a saint. And this is when her trial went private. She was also put into military jail instead of a church one, which meant that she was subject to all manner of torture and rape. And she was consistently threatened with both torture and rape. And to protect herself, she tied intricate knots around her soldier's uniform so that they could not remove it. And this proved to be successful by most, well, all accounts, really. There are no records that she was ever raped or tortured physically while she was in prison. Now, that could also mean that the records were destroyed, so don't hedge your bets with that. The church officials decided that if she insisted on keeping her story straight, maintaining her innocence and humility, that they were going to have to charge her with something else. So, due to her soldier's uniform, dressing like a man was then added to her charges. On May 29, 1431, the church tribunal decided that Joan d'Arc was guilty of heresy and was sentenced to burn at the stake the next morning in the marketplace at Rouen. She was executed the next morning with her ashes scattered in the Seine. It bears mentioning here that King Charles eventually won the war around 22 years later, and after he ordered an investigation of her charges, he declared her innocent. He designated her a martyr, and she was canonized as a saint on May 16, 1920, and even now she's the patron saint of France. But she was burned when France was done with her. She was burned when she became a burden to King Charles VII, and then exonerated when she could no longer pose any sort of competition. Gilles was devastated. Joan was a close friend when he didn't have a lot of those, and he'd fought so bravely and so mercilessly for France, alongside a woman who was later named a saint. And the church that she represented burned her to death in front of thousands of spectators. He participated in a few more military skirmishes, but he was grief-stricken and decided to end his military career altogether. He retired back to his estate in Brittany, spending his vast fortune at lightning speed. This was noticed immediately by his grandfather, Jean, 
And when he died, he decided to make a public gesture in his will that made his feelings clear. Instead of leaving his sword and breastplate to Gilles, who he'd fought next to, he left it to Gilles' younger brother, René de la Souze. While Jean's death may not have been traumatic to Gilles, this was a blow that may or may not have been necessary. Gilles, having learned nothing from it, continued to spend frivolously. He commissioned music, poems, and books chronicling Joan's life, and blew through nearly all of his money on two passion projects. First, he constructed a new chapel of the Holy Innocence, and had custom robes created for himself so he could officiate services. He also went a step further to make a boys' choir with boys that were carefully chosen for it. Then, he wrote and produced a play called Le Mystère du Siege d'Orléans. The play required over 140 different speaking parts and 500 extras to make it work, and by the time it was ready to be put on, he was nearly bankrupt. To mitigate this and continue to pay for the creation of new costumes, he began selling off his family's lands and priceless works of art, including sculptures and books. The 600 costumes made for the play were custom to each actor and had to be completely reworked after each performance. It was a vast amount of money for a play that was seen as fiscally irresponsible for the time. He had been selling his property off at alarming rates to afford it, and the only properties he had left at this point was the castle at Chamtossé-sur-Loire and Ingrand. Out of all of the money gotten from the land sales, a total of half went to the play, and the other half went to what was described as an indolent and extravagant lifestyle. The first performance was on May 8, 1435, and food and drink were supplied to each audience member for coming to watch the shows. One month later, after the true expense of the play was known to Gilles' family, they took action. First, they reached out to Pope Eugene IV to disavow the Chapel of the Holy Innocents, which would end his patronage of it. Then, after the Pope refused to do that, they took their complaints to King Charles. On July 2nd, 1435, a royal edict was issued, announcing that Gilles was not to sell any more property, and what's more, any subject of King Charles VII caught entering into contracts with him would be arrested. The proclamation issued also declared that he was a spendthrift, and so he began selling anything he could to satisfy his creditors because all of his lines of credit immediately fell through. In Brittany, however, the edict was not followed, even though the Duke was asked to enforce it. This isn't a huge surprise. I mean, he's the most powerful guy there, besides the Duke. And whether he had a safe haven there or not, he still left it to live in Machacool. He was clearly upset at the way that the country he served, with everything he had, had treated him. And why shouldn't he be? They looked the other way as his closest friend burned to death and had her name dragged through the mud. Now they were dragging his name through the mud. So he reached out to a priest, Father Eustace Blanchet. He asked the priest to go out into the area and find people who were well-versed in alchemy and demon summoning, 
which, by the way, apparently not a weird ask. While demon summoning was absolutely against church law, alchemy was not. So I guess he felt comfortable with that? I don't know. The priest reached out to a fellow cleric, Francois Prilati, in Florence. He was in possession of several books on magic and demon summoning, which made it easy for the three to initiate their services immediately. They began at the castle at Tifoge and tried to summon a demon named Baron. Gilles was desperate for money and results, and when the demon wouldn't show up during rituals, he was angry with Prilati. To take the heat of a still very powerful man off of himself, he told Gilles that Baron was angry with him, and he required the ritual sacrifice of a child so that the body parts could be used as an offering. And this really may have been to dissuade Gilles from doing any of this. Because who would be like, oh, okay, cool, I'll have that. Um, Gilles would be that guy. He provided the said body parts in a glass jar, but no demon came. Gilles had been hiding a very important fact from the world while he was out writing plays about his best friend. He had been raping and murdering children since 1432. He began in Chantossé-sur-Loire, where his family lived. And if he told the courts about them, the first murders, the accounts have not survived the test of time. Others, however, do. Once he'd moved to Mashakul, he was fully able to indulge his desires. He sodomized and otherwise raped dozens of children and didn't even have to kidnap them in most cases. Many families were told that their children would be taking a position in his home, and he would give them brand new clothes, and then treat them to extravagant meals they'd never had before. We know this because in the case of a 12-year-old boy who'd been raped and murdered, there was documentation. Jean Benedetti, an author who wrote a biography of Gilles de Rai, in 1971, writes the following about the children who fell into Rai's hands. The boy was pampered and dressed in better clothes than he had ever known. The evening began with a large meal and heavy drinking, particularly Hippocra, which acted as a stipul- stimulant. The boy was then taken to an upper room, to which only Gilles and his immediate circle were admitted. There he was confronted with the true nature of his situation. The shock thus produced on the boy was an initial source of pleasure for Gilles. Rai's bodyguard, Etienne Corillot, also testified that his master would strip his victims naked and hang them up with a rope around their mouths so they couldn't cry out. He would assault them in various ways and torture them while hanging there until he was satisfied. Once he was finished, he would take the child down and comfort them and assure them that he only wanted to play. Once the victim thought that the ordeal was over, he or his cousin or his bodyguard would then decapitate them or otherwise cut their throat. Occasionally, Gilles took more time and dismembered them while they were alive. I won't go into further detail from here because it only gets worse and it gets really, really bad. And it's not my purpose to exploit that. Etienne said the bodies were disposed of by cremation in a large fireplace in the castle, and then the ashes were thrown into the cesspit. If the victim was particularly attractive, their heads would be kept so he could kiss them after the rest of the body was cremated. 
power and rank were the only reasons that Gilles was never caught after eight years of kidnapping and otherwise killing children. He wasn't caught until he kidnapped a priest in 1440. He'd had a disagreement with the priest of Saint-Antienne de Mermorte. The reason for which I can't seem to find, but the result was that he and his men kidnapped the priest and held him captive. This would not be abided. Gilles, his bodyguard, and his cousin were then arrested, and his servants were interviewed. They immediately spoke to investigators about the sacrifices that had taken place, and the children that had been abducted and murdered. Then, Father Eustace Blanchet and Francois Prilati were located and testified to their involvement with Gilles and the children. Overall, at least 150 children fell victim to Gilles de Rye's bloodlust and determination to make a pact with the demon. He and his cohorts were sentenced to death by hanging and burning. He was executed on October 26th, and his family and the town were present. Was he guilty, though? And I hate to throw that on at the very end of the episode, because this one's a cliffhanger. So the next episode will be about whether he was guilty or not. And I know I, I framed it as though he was not, or he was guilty this entire episode. That was my fun. But yeah, um, we don't know, right? So I will discuss that in part two of Gilles de Rye. Thank you guys for listening. This was a particularly difficult episode to research, not just because of the graphic depictions of uh, what he did or did not do to the children, um, but also because, I mean, man, the Hundred Years' War was just a back and forth of constant fighting. It was difficult for both countries involved, for England and France. But anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed it, and reach out to me on Instagram or on TikTok. On Instagram, I'm at Historical Paranormal, and on TikTok, I'm at The Historical Paranormal. But either way, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you have different pronunciations for things, there are a couple that I did not ask Annalise about, so I felt like I completely butchered them, so we'll see. Um, I am finishing this show so that I can have some peace and quiet inside of a closet. So if it sounds weird for the very last half of it, or very last part of it, that's why. I'm having to hide in a closet to record right now. <laughs> but you know what? I'm in good company. I have heard of a few shows have like the hosts having to do that. So I don't feel terrible about it. But anyway, thank you for listening. I hope y'all have a great week. Until next time. Bye.